0: Hello, and welcome to the Fourth You Dimension podcast. My name is Ember Kelly, and I am the Director of Religious Education here at the Fourth Universalist Society in the city of New York. In this podcast, we are looking at colonialism. Our adult education this month is focused around the topic of colonialism. We've had a previous podcast as well as an upcoming In Conversation event, and we have had a Confronting Colonialism course that is ongoing, and we are trying to grapple with the legacy of colonialism in our society. Today, I'm going to be sitting down with Tyler Tully to talk a little bit more about colonialism and specifically how it also relates to religion. So I'm really excited to get to sit down with Tyler today for a podcast recording. Tyler, for those who don't know you, would you like to introduce yourself really quick?
1: Sure. Thanks so much, Ember. My name is Tyler Tully. Um, I'm originally an Oklahoman, uh, displaced um, and prodigal. Maybe someday I'll come back, but uh, I am a PhD student at the University of Oxford, where I study religion and science and its impact through settler colonialism in the United States. Um, It's fantastic to be here, Ember, and it's good to see you and meet up again.
0: Yes. So Tyler and I know each other through our mutual connection, and Tyler, that mutual connection is? Chicago Theological Seminary. Yes, we'll, we'll treat Chicago Theological Seminary like it's a person. So there's a <laughs> right. mutual connection uh, through seminary journeys to, you know, knowing, knowing that fun of, of spending lots and lots and lots of time thinking about religion. But that is why uh, it feels perfect to, to dive into how uh, colonialism impacts religion and vice versa. Uh, right. And so you were already talking a little bit about uh, the work you were doing there at Oxford. Would you like to tell us a little bit about your academic research? Sure, absolutely. Um, so my subfield, as I
1: mentioned, is religion and science. And I love working in the subfield because there's so much misconception around what science means in opposition to religion, what religion means in opposition to science. But of course, these are very recent binaries that have come out, right? Like the majority of the time that religion and science have existed, we haven't had um, that antagonism that's perceived between the two. Um, And that split between religion and science is really reflective of that larger phenomenon that we know of secularism versus religion, where religion nowadays represents something that's internal, maybe something that is a belief, maybe it's a faith that one articulates or one invests in, or maybe one is an, an inherent, right? But um, for all intents and purposes, we usually define religion as an individual phenomenon and we define the religious group as a community of individuals, right? And now on the opposite side of that is secularism and underneath that big umbrella, we position public things like science and facts and government and institutions. And we have a long mythology in the United States of a separation between the two, but we often... You know, when we we accept that as such without interrogating interrogating it critically, I think we often forget that that's a binary that's artificial. And that's one that often hides overlap that comes between the two. So I like to think of my um, academic research as like peeling back those layers that have been um, sort of glossed over and unaccounted for. And I look at the ways that race and religion and place all overlap and interact with one another. Um, particularly in the United States um, over the long durée of the last three or four centuries and seeking out uh, both um, black racially black and racially white groups as they come to terms with what it means to be um, citizens or residents of the what would become the United States um, as as in relationship with the indigenous people who lived there. So um, White people and Black people uh, in the United States have always been aware um, that the United States um, was first occupied by other peoples, by Indigenous peoples. Um, And the way that they treat uh, and interact and and make community with those people is so interesting. It's so rich. Um, It's so tragic. It's so beautiful. But um, my research gets to look at the, the messy ways that um, race and settler colonialism explain or don't explain the phenomenon that we see today?
0: I mean, there's, there's so many things that we could dive into there. I know, I'm sorry. Um, uh, but I think, you know, we have already narrowed down that this will be a conversation about religion. So uh, with, with something like the doctrine of discovery, mm. it's obviously a very big thing, and some some congregations have begun to, like, repudiate it but religion did play a very big role in the process of colonialism. Absolutely. I know I, I've been uh, recently working through the dawning of apocalypse, of the apocalypse by Horn. Uh, and it was very much about like, hey, like, how is religion slowly shifted to capitalism and like these, these amorphous categories? And it's interesting because it also discusses uh, the development of whiteness as a concept uh, mm-hmm. as different, different from religion, which sounds like it would intersect well with, with, with your area of study. But so I'd really be curious for some of your insight on the role that religion has played in advancing settler colonialism and advancing colonialism as a whole.
1: Absolutely. So let's start with some helpful definitions, right? So when we talk about settler colonialism, what we mean is a very particular type of imperial project, a type of colonialism, right? And settler colonialism has been defined as uh, a type of imperialism in which the invading people, this being European colonizing peoples, seek to eradicate and replace the indigenous peoples living in relationship with the land, right? So we um, we see types of settler colonialism all over the world, um, mostly white and European, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, the United States, Israel, Northern Ireland. Uh, these are countries or nations um, in the modern European sense that are settler colonial. Um, that in, in other words, um, their trajectory, their history, the way that they've evolved unfolds from, you know, the mid 15th century until today. And one of the, the common ties, as you touched on there, Ember. one of the common ties that threads all these different places and all these different forms of settler colonialism is both whiteness and religion, right? And the reason why whiteness and religion overlap here and the, and the reason that it gives us pause to scratch our head as you know, people living in the 21st century is because as I mentioned before, when we talk about religion, we think of it as a personal individual phenomenon, right? Back in the 15th, 15th century, however, when the doctrines of discovery were being written, um, we have instances in which um, religion and the state and whiteness and place all overlapped, right? If, if the world could be split up into different categories at that time, it wasn't by the seven continents. It was by European um, Christi- Christendom, um, Africa, and Asia and the Middle East. Um, it was tripartite, in other words, and really organized around the Mediterranean. Um, if you were from Christendom, you were a Christian. Um, if you were from Africa, you were a barbarian or a savage. And um, if you were from Asia, you were a heathen. And th- this was the, the type of uh, typology that Christians were talking about um, at the time that the, the Doctrines of Discovery were written. Um, so when we talk about the Doctrines of Discovery, let's talk about another definition, right? Right. It's a fancy word, um, doctrines of discovery for papal bulls or or, um, pieces of legislation that came out of the Vatican, right? Um, Now, if we look at it with 21st century eyes and we say, oh, these are religious documents, we're missing the point, Because these documents, although they were written by a religious leader (laughs) for all intents and purposes, and approved by uh, European religious entities, um, those entities were also secular. They were also civic, they were also economic and scientific, and there wasn't this division between the two. Um, however, uh, you know, as as the Crusade started um, and Europeans started um, to encounter others on the periphery of the world. Uh, they began to create justifications for um, their behaviors, um, and so, for example, uh, you know, when Pope Urban II, who's who's sort of famous for, for being the first pope to inaugurate the Crusades, um, when when they decided to uh, take over the the um, the Eastern trade routes that that European. Uh, Monarchs and feudal lords had no access to or had to work through other agents in order to enter, Um, they came up with pieces of legislation that helped to legally justify um, their actions. So, um, when we talk about the doctrines of discovery, we have to think of them as these types of pieces of legislation that are empowering um, European bodies and governments um, to do certain things and to um, behave in certain ways legally. Uh, when, when, when we talk about the doctrines of discovery, we also sometimes forget uh, that there were three pieces of legislation um, that helped contribute to you know, what we collectively call the doctrines of discovery. But these three different pieces of legislation began in 1455 with the conquest of West Africa, it um, extended with Columbus in 1492. And then after that, through treaties between Portugal and Spain, uh, in which the world was divided in half from Greenland to Portugal. Everything east of that line would be the property of um, the Kingdom of Portugal. And everything to the west of that would be, uh, you know, part and parcel to the Kingdom of Spain. Um, and this document um, is not only uh, a relic of colonial pasts it's it is quite clearly uh the basis for land title in the united states and it is still employed by court systems including the united states supreme court as recently as 2005. the doctrines of discovery are for all intents and purposes still a legally binding um, basis that establishes why the united states deserves to be here
0: well as you talked about how we separate uh, religion and society in the United States we we definitely almost even have uh, a civic religion like it may not be uh, explicitly any denomination though it obviously has lots of christian undertones mm-hmm. usually but we we very much have this like civic uh, religion of like this is this is the ideal of america and what we stand for but that's i mean that itself is also related to colonialism i would say oh yeah
1: absolutely I mean, we think about like the different pomp and circumstance that we have uh, in a courtroom, right? There's a dais, there's an elevated dais, there's a robed figure. Um, you know, 200 years ago, he would have been wigged. He would have had like one of those beautiful parliamentarian wigs and looked like, you know, somebody from, uh, I don't know, like the, the, the 1600s, um, like a pirate or something. Um, the, the swearing in of people um, before they give testimony. Um, the swearing in of the Bible or of some related document when people are sworn into office um, the Fourth of July uh, you know like all the hymns and songs that are sung in certain churches, the waving of the flag uh in a sense, yes, absolutely R- Robert Bella and other scholars refer to this as civil religion um and because it it in their estimation it it sort of replaced uh faith-based or doctrinal religion um, to become a more multicultural, neoliberal, postmodern um, expression of a national you know, identity. Um, the funny thing is though, is that you know, when indigenous scholars like um, Sue uh, Delor- uh, Vine Deloria uh, talks about um, civil religion, he says, you know, civil religion is just a made up word. Every time that natives in the United States encounter the federal government, they're engaging with a foreign religion, right? And, and because of um, that perspective that he has as a Standing Rock Sioux scholar, um, he knows that the doctrines of discovery are what connects this like, you know, pre-modern ideal of religion being a state, you know, church state function versus this, you know, post-modern ideal of religion being something that's just personally opted into. So I think it's so fascinating to, to look at, um. Settler colonialism in the United States, because it necessarily disrupts our mythologies and our the way that we make sense of the things that we see around
0: us. So as as we face down something like settler colonialism and colonialism in general, you know one of one of the big buzzwords uh, I would dare to call it uh, is to decolonize. You know I I feel like I see uh, a wide range of people using this term, whether they're uh, random YouTubers or or academic scholars, like it, it, it's really entered into just the, the social justice uh, lectionary around around um, colonialism. So, uh, how would you personally understand and define decolonizing? Mm.
1: So, I think I'm a big fan of decolonization. Let me just put it that uh, out there <laughs> real quick. So, I think that I think the most appropriate way to answer that question is to position myself. I am white. I am a descendant of both settlers and Chickasaw Nation. Uh, by that, I mean I'm a lineal descendant of the original roles. Um, each context is different uh, for each tribe. And in, in my particular case, um, we have relatives who are on the rolls and moved to what would later become Oklahoma. But what um, the Supreme Court just Recently reaffirmed has always been Chickasaw Nation and Muskogee Creek Nation and Cherokee Nation and so on. Um, but you know, it, I think Oklahoma is one of those funny places where, um, if you if you sort of understand people's relationship to land there, you can understand it anywhere in the United States. Um, and in that sense, um, I grew up in this really weird world of celebrating the land run every year in school. And like dressing up as, you know, European pioneers, and um, you know, having these races on, you know, stick horses and beanbag tosses and all that sort of a thing. Um, but then also, um, like literally seeing the impact of coloni- colonization around you. Um, Oklahoma was created as a state through allotment, which is the the dissolving of communal Indian lands into private property. And this was a, um, it it was touted as a mechanism of of civilization as, you know, progressive and as teaching these backward savage people how to to depend on themselves and how to invest in agriculture. Um, But it was really a strategy in removing them from the land and getting access to title and to land ownership. Um, So when we think about decolonization, we can never think about it outside of its context to the land. And if we talk about the land, we're talking about indigenous peoples in the United States. Um, I was so lucky to just recently be able to respond to Leanne Simpson, who is a fantastic writer uh, and scholar and music artist and poet and just all around badass. Um, Please buy her work. Um, she was talking to us about decolonization and she said, decolonization cannot happen without indigenous people. So if we just want a really simple rubric of what decolonized means, I think that's a perfect rubric. Wherever we start, if it doesn't involve and it isn't initiated by indigenous peoples, then it's not decolonization. Um, that would be, I think that would be the best answer for that question. We could certainly unpack that further if you want, because it's a complicated question, but um, I think that's just the most straightforward answer.
0: I mean I think it I think it makes sense because colonization is about taking agency, taking land, taking identity, taking um economic power, taking political power, taking it all away. Mm-hmm. Uh and so decolonization should naturally be a return of of giving that power and giving that focus to to indigenous peoples. I mean that that, that seems seems a, a fair, uh simple definition of it. Um you know,
1: I think related to this are really important projects like diversifying our reading lists, um, making sure that we're, we're practicing just hiring practices, um, telling the story the right way, confronting America's colonial history and um, you know, critiquing that, that's all a part of the process. But uh, I'm afraid that like in today's rhetoric, um, we forget that ideology, even good, well-intentioned ideology also works in service of colonization and imperialism. And so, for example, um, Roxanne dunbar Ortiz gives an example in her book, Indigenous uh, People's History of the United States, uh, of the way that the conversation sort of shifted around Indian land in the United States before World War II and after. Before World War II, um, it was generally known in the United States that Indigenous peoples owned the land, so to speak, from a white perspective. And they were recognized as the original inhabitants and we entered into hundreds of treaties with them as as international nation states. Um, And many of those treaties are still in effect. And according to the U.S. Constitution, any treaty with a foreign government, including Indian tribes, um, is the supreme law of the land. So that's what we're talking about in terms of how important Relationship the, the, the colonial relationship with Indian tribes is for the United States and the United States Constitution. Before the before the Civil War and World War II, there was sort of this um, understanding that the original inhabitants already had relationships with the you know their traditional homelands, and through treaties and through warfare and through disease and other means of imperialism, the United States whittled that away, but then would reserve a portion of that original homeland for the tribe. But if they took that deal, the United States had several treaty obligations to help offset um, theoretically, help offset like the um, lack of income and the transition to that smaller piece of land, right? This included rations, it included payments, it included trade. These were deals between two different nations, two different countries. So all the types of negotiations you could, imagine are, were on the table at that time. But the ideology shifted after World War II and we, we really uh, took more of a neoliberal perspective at it. And, and the, the rhetoric around Indian relationship to land changed to one of being uh, lands given by the US government or afforded, these people are, are asking for welfare or they're um, you know, on the dole, so to speak, as they would say in the UK. Um, so the the way that we talk about this is, is definitely important. And, and when well-intentioned people want to diversify their curriculums and they want to hold white supremacy to account and they want to talk about imperialism and how it works uh, in multiple ways in the United States, those are all necessary and important conversations. But if it's not focused on land and it's not focused on the repatriation and rematriation of that land, then it's not
0: decolonization. So, In terms of something that's maybe a bit more amorphous, like religion, Mm -hmm. um, you know, lots of people talk about like decolonizing theology, decolonizing religion, uh, or in in our context of having gone to Chicago Seminary, usually decolonizing Christianity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, is that something that you think is possible from your perspective? And what what does that even look like? You know, talk about a broad question. I think that's that's a a big one there.
1: It's such a good question because it's such a difficult question. Um, I've wrestled with this question um, for the last several years um, as I've been reconnecting. Um, There are different ways to answer this question. I think, I can't help but think of people like Vine Deloria who comes from several generations of Episcopal ministers, um, indigenous Episcopal ministers uh, who, you know, after going to seminary and after becoming a, a tribal lawyer, um, just realized that his um, survival and survivance um, could not could not um, be worked through in conjunction with Christianity. Um, and there are many people like that. Um, there, there are many uh, who. For one reason or another, and all these are contextual. Uh, you know, episodes in history, but um, Christianity has a long standing relationship with colonization, as we've discussed. And it's easy for us to make that modernist split between religion and government uh, in a way that absolves us as white people and as descendants of settlers from our imperialist legacy um, and for the reparations that are owed. Um, you know, I I think that others like Mark Charles and Caitlin Curtis, um, are very honest about the way that they wrestle with their Christian faith in light of that colonial history. And there's some very rich and important critiques that they work out too, um, Now, outside of Native conversations, what would it mean for Christianity to decolonize? And is that even possible? Well, first of all, I think we have to ask ourselves, like, what is Christianity, right? That's a big question. And I want to refrain from getting into, like, a no-true-Scotsman answer that says, like, you know, there's a moving target called Christianity, and we've never quite found it found it yet because it's this ideal that we're reaching for it's a it's a messianic dream that we're going to get to one day right i think the more difficult truth is that um, there is no understanding colonialism without christianity and ergo there is no understanding christianity without colonialism um now it would be fair and it would be important for us to trace back all the different ways that christianity lent itself to the invasion of the Americas, the invasion of Africa, uh, the colonization of Asia. Um, You know, that's certainly um, a more modern phenomenon, right? But um, that legacy is still there in the Crusades. Like the Crusades comes from the Latin word for carrying the cross, right? Like we cannot, as Christians, um, absolve ourselves from the histories that we're a part of, right? These are histories that have to be examined. Others have been more critical of what the term religion means and have situated it right in the middle of that modernist context. These people take what is called a more critical approach to the study of religion, and they look at the ways that religion as a category is part and parcel of that ideology I described earlier, the justifications for empire, the justifications for othering the inhabitants that were colonized. I think religion has an important function in that capacity as well, as sort of a thematic or as a genre. Now, it gets messy when we start thinking about how Christianity and empire work together through missionary societies, both in the United States and abroad. Uh, if we think about religion as only an innate and personal like, phenomenon, a choice that one makes, a rational decision, um, we're sort of like just propping up that liberal humanist ideal of what religion is that makes that binary between you know science and religion and the secular and religion when the truth is is that all of those things overlap right and and if we look at um missionary societies for example we see lots of very well-intentioned people who wanted to spread the gospel from every denomination you can think of um but they were part of this process of landing people of taking you know um, land of of enslaving people and bringing their slaves from the United States with them on the mission field. This is all part of Christian legacy. This is all part of Christian history. Um, And and it needs to to be acknowledged. And I'm grateful for those who are acknowledging it. In anticipation of this question, I asked several of my friends what they thought. And um, there are those who fall on both sides of that question. I don't want to foreclose it for anyone. I think that these are important questions that people must wrestle with, and at least speaking for myself, it's something that I think I'll be wrestling with the rest of my life.
0: Well, and I think that's, that's a fair a fair place to be. Uh, I mean even just as someone who would categorize themselves as a bit more radical, I often find can you know can Christianity be be a force for positive change? Can religion be a force for positive change? These are all questions that I know I've grappled with on, on my a spiritual journey that has led me to this, this UU world where I still continue grappling with even more. Can I, you know, what is, what is the path forward? Um,
1: And we should also say, you mentioned it earlier, the UU has actually been quite diligent and proactive in naming the doctrines of discovery and for calling for repentance and, and not just leaving it at thoughts and prayers, but I also know that the the UU has advocated for Congress, you know, overturning the doctrines of discovery and for repudiating it as uh, as colonial and as imperialist, um, I think they actually offer a fantastic example of the ways that um, other Christian societies and denominations, other religions, other um, faith practices, whatever you want to call them, um, we we need material uh outcomes that that are real and not just talk right so decolonization if anything is material and and i think that you know when we talk about religion sometimes we risk leaving out the material we we want to make it about spiritual things instead of you know the land that we actually occupy or the taxes that we paid that drop bombs on brown people like we're not talking about the material circumstances we're leaving it at, at the at the level of individual choice um so I think I think I'm really grateful for places like the UU who are like reaching out for those tangible ends too.
0: And I mean I think that that's fair because so many people do just take these concepts and then you know do some in, in, in inner individual work and then leave it at that. but mm-hmm. it, it was something like colonialism where it has um, you know taken so much, it's not enough to just be like, oh well, uh, whoopsies! My ancestors did some colonialisms, um, right. but instead to to be thinking about concrete ways that we can uh, begin to make a right. I know when I was uh, prepping for everything with our with this whole colonialism month, that one of the things that I came across was because you know, I've I've heard of people doing land acknowledgments. That's, mm-hmm. that's a, become a fairly common practice, um, and uh, you know I think. those are important, but they were talking about, they they connected it to calling it living land acknowledgments, and that there is uh, not just that you're acknowledging that whose land you're on, but that you have developed a relationship with uh, said tribe, like discovered where that those people ended up discovering if there's still any of them in in the vicinity and beginning to build an actual relationship. You know, I think that Mm. that many people when they talk about decolonization can become this more abstract concept but you know we're talking about real mm-hmm. real, peoples, real people real that, people that are really really impacted by it so i think that 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 to me seemed like uh, also like a good place to start it's such community. a good place and i'm so glad
1: that you mentioned it that's such a tangible way to participate in decolonization getting to know the tribes lands that you're on finding out the history but then also I think pushing back against individualism in, in, in progress is important too, because you know the ideology of individualism helps absolve us from that colonial past. It says, you know, like if I didn't have anything to do with it, why, why should I research it? You know, why why should I care? Why should I develop relationships? Well, the truth is is that um, everything that we have, for better or for worse, um, came through those imperial relationships and histories, and so. It's not fair for us to absolve ourselves any more than it would be to, um, you know, refrain from coming into relationship with the indigenous peoples here and and, and seeking out their better, um, you know, their their empowerment.
0: So I think those are some some concrete steps, especially as communities. Uh, if individuals kind of wanted to start diving a little bit more into this, what are what are some ways that you would? Uh, encourage people individually um, and as communities to begin to concretely learn more and do a little bit more. I think we've hit a little bit more on the do it more, but uh, I'd be curious your your thoughts on for someone new to this, where where to start learning? Well, there's some fantastic resources.
1: I already mentioned an amazing book by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz called An Indigenous People's History of the United States. Um, It is not a book about, um, you know, a history of indigenous civilizations prior to contact. There are definitely lots of books written, you know, about that. But hers is about settler colonialism in the United States. And it is an accessible book. It is a a well-documented book. It's a fantastic resource. Um, There's also a fantastic website on the Doctrine of Discovery. You can just Google the Doctrine of Discovery. Uh, They have all kinds of fantastic uh, panels, webinars, and um, free blog posts that you can educate yourself with. And then I think the third most important thing that you already mentioned was just doing the research on your own to find out the relationships that you have with the land and the peoples uh, who originally inhabited. it. Um, they still exist. They're somewhere. Um, if they haven't been moved and removed somewhere, they may already still be near like where you live. And so if you really want to get interested in this, listen. Um, don't do it now. Don't do it in the middle of the pandemic. Um, please respect uh, that native peoples in the United States have higher infection rates than um, just about anyone else. Uh, I, the reason I mentioned that is because I'm seeing all these tweets from like my fellow PhD students who can't wait to like go do field research. And I'm like, are you kidding me? We're like in the middle of a pandemic. Why would you be putting at-risk people uh, in harm's way? But um, I think doing that research on the local level is where it starts, Ember.
0: Tyler, thanks so much for joining for this podcast today. I, I think there's a lot of great stuff that I uh, really appreciate you sharing with our, with our community. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here. It was really a pleasure and an honor.